All right. Mark chapter 10, and I'll go ahead and I'll put the sermon outline up for us today so you can follow along. If you'd like to take notes or you just kind of like some structure, we're going to look at three things. Um, There's three points, but really the main point I want us to look at together is point number two from this passage. But here they are. Number one, Jesus welcomes our emptiness. I was going to say he welcomes us in our emptiness, but I couldn't fit it all in the first line there. It kept going, you know. Jesus challenges our assumptions, point two, and we're going to spend the majority of our time kind of camped out there and unpacking what that means. He challenges our assumptions, and that's a good thing because we all have them. Everybody in this room has an assumption. We all have a blind spot. We all have preconceived ideas about who we are, who Jesus is, what the plan of salvation is. And sometimes Jesus needs to just give us a gut punch, right? A reality check, and he does that here. And third, really, really, really short point. Uh, I wish it could be longer, but we're going through Mark's gospel really quickly. Jesus rewards our sacrifices. So the title of the message is Something is Missing, and I think it's really appropriate, and hopefully you see it as clearly uh, as I do here, that this man is troubled. He is greatly troubled. He's rich. He's young, and he's a ruler. By the way, uh, this story must be really important. Every story in the Bible is. All Scripture is profitable. Uh, but some stories we find over and over again. And you know that if, you, if you're new to the Bible, that's okay. If you open up the New Testament, there's four different gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. They all tell the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And they all look at it from different angles. And sometimes you find one particular story that stood out to everybody. This is one of those stories. It's in three of the four different accounts. Matthew records it, Mark records it, and Luke records it. Of course, we're looking at Mark's version. But if you take all those stories together, we see some things about this man that I think it's important to note. Matthew says that he was young. Uh, Mark says that he was rich. And Luke says that he was a ruler. And that word ruler is interesting because in Greek, it's the same word used for the ruler of a synagogue, okay? So maybe this guy's a preacher. We don't know. Could be, could not be. We can't be certain, but he definitely is hung up on morality. So we got a guy here. From the outside, this guy's got it all together. I mean, this is the guy that I have two daughters, okay? This is the guy that you would want your daughters to marry. If he comes home and asks permission to date your daughter, you do a backflip. This guy's got it all together. He's put together well. He's connected. He seems to be moral. He's got influence. He's got affluence. But what he doesn't have is peace or assurance. On the outside, there's there's a smile there, right? But on the inside, this guy's coming apart at the seams. He's very troubled. He's very unsettled. There's this pervasive and pronounced emptiness that he feels. Maybe you felt that emptiness before. Maybe you're feeling it right now. Maybe you're not rich or young (laughs) or the ruler, a ruler. You're not powerful. But maybe on the outside, there's kind of a facade of, of finitis, I call it. You know, we get finitis in the church. How you doing? I'm fine. I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. We're all fine, right? This guy's not fine. He's not doing okay. And it's to the extent that he just throws off protocol. Wealthy, rich noblemen in the ancient Near East didn't come running to some crazy rabbi. That's what Jesus would have been perceived at in the day. This guy came running, and he, kneel, he falls down in front of Jesus. Look at the text here. Verse 17, and he kneels down, he's very desperate. As he was setting out on his journey, verse 17, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, 
Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Can you sense this guy's desperation? This guy needs help. This guy needs a counselor. He really does. He needs counseling. All the niceties except for good teacher, that's kind of a formality. He gets straight to the point. He's not playing around. He's a religious figure, probably the ruler of a synagogue, as I said before, but he's not here to trap Jesus like the Pharisees and the scribes and the lawyers. He doesn't have ulterior motives. This guy wants peace. He wants a settled heart. Something is desperately missing in his life, and he knows that perhaps this man has the answer. He's been hearing him teach about the kingdom of God and blessed are the, the peacemakers, and this guy wants that. He's got everything else on the outside. I think he probably was religious. This guy probably taught Sunday school. He probably had a corner office with a view, you know, and a, and a chair that was really leather at work. This guy would have been well put together and everyone would have envied him probably and wanted what he had, except for the lack of peace and, and the lack of assurance. He was probably clean cut, respectable, polite. Maybe he taught Sunday school at church, but this guy's coming apart. He doesn't have security and he doesn't have assurance. And listen, if you don't have those things, you're not going to make it in life. You're not. Even the way he asked this question in these Gospels, he says, what good thing must I do um, to inherit eternal life? He doesn't just mean, how can I know for sure that I'm going to go to heaven when I die? He's not just looking at his death in the future. He's young. Most young people don't even think about that until much later in life. No, he's talking about the quality of life now, right now. Maybe he heard the sermon that Jesus preached on more abundant life, John 10, right? I have come so that you may have life and so that you may have it, what? More abundantly. He's got everything that you could ever ask for, right? But he doesn't have abundant life. This guy, he can't sleep at night. He's a wreck. He's at the end of himself. So he comes in desperation to the only one that he thinks may be able to give him answers. And here's the point is that, listen, Jesus receives us. He welcomes our emptiness, he, he, over and over, Jesus makes, this, makes sure in the Gospels that we understand this. He's not put off by our neediness. Did you know that Jesus is really attracted to need? There's like this magnetic connection between Jesus and needy people. You know, we don't have that sometimes. Let's be honest. Let's be real in church. Do needy people exhaust you sometimes? They do, don't they? And listen, all of us have needs at different varying levels. And we can exhaust each other. With the text or with an email, it's like, oh man, again? Seriously? Didn't we already talk about this? Never, never, never does Jesus give off an aura like that, ever. No, he is attracted to need. He's attracted to the brokenhearted, the Bible says. What he can't stand, what, what exhausts Jesus is, is pretending. The hypocrisy. Oh, I'm fine, you're fine. No, that wearies him. He can't, that's, that's the one thing that Jesus won't tolerate. But neediness? Oh no, come to me. All you who are weary and empty and broken, those of you who know something radically is wrong with you, those are the people Jesus wants to spend his time with. Jesus makes time for this man, and he'll make time for you. He welcomes us in our emptiness. And better to be honest about it, right? It's like, Lord, something's missing in my life. I know people that would envy my life. Got it made. Beautiful wife. Beautiful children. Or maybe I'm living the rich single life, you know, that people would envy. But Lord, something's radically wrong with me, and it's, I need help. 
I need peace. I need that power. I need confidence. See, you can't make it through life without what this guy's lacking. You can't. You can pretend, but it's exhausting, isn't it? Have you ever lived just any season of your life this way? It will wreck you. It will wreck you. And this guy is wrecked. He needs assurance. And it's interesting, the word used for young ruler in, I think it's uh, Matthew's gospel, it would be the word that would describe a young man between the ages of 24 and 40. So this guy's relatively young. And probably about the same age as Jesus, which is really interesting. We'll come back to that a little bit later. So a guy, Jesus' age, who has it all, comes and, and falls down before this peasant carpenter from Nazareth, right? He says, help me. I need help. Something's wrong. And if we're honest, if we start thinking about assurance of our sin, assurance that our sins have been forgiven, confidence that we're right with God, that, that God loves us, all of us have sensed that, that paranoia maybe that this guy sensed. How many of you watched Won't You Be My Neighbor, the Mr. Rogers Neighborhood documentary? It's really good. It's really good, and of course, it's just as clean as his show was, so no worries there. Uh, Sarah and I watched it sometime back, and then I read an article about it not too long ago, and there's a really interesting part in this documentary. Now, look, I just want to give a disclaimer here. I don't know who the filmmakers were. Um, they're not particularly interested in theology, I can tell you that, um, but Mr. Rogers, you may not know this, you know, there's all kinds of urban legends about Mr. Rogers. Have you heard them? He was a Navy SEAL and he wore long sleeves to cover up his tattoos and he could kill you with his pinky. Have you heard all those stories? They're not, they're not true, okay? <laughs> uh, there's nothing wrong with tattoos, but Mr. Rogers didn't have any. He wasn't a Navy SEAL. Uh, he was actually an ordained Presbyterian minister that had been to seminary. Did you know that? Yeah, Mr. Rogers, man, theologian, right? Well, listen, he died of stomach cancer over 15 years ago. He was on his deathbed in the hospital, and his wife, Joanna, was there. This documentary, just really brief window, she talked about this. He's lying on his deathbed. He looks up at his wife, and he asks her this gripping question. He says, am I a sheep? Am I a sheep? Now, he's not delusional. <laughs> like, am I a dog? You know? No, no, no. This question is very, has deep, rich theological significance. See, Mr. Rogers knew the Bible. He'd been to seminary, and he knew that there's passages that talk about when the Son of Man comes and appears with the angels in all of his glory, he's going to do a, he's going to separate the goats from the sheep. Now, you know in the Bible, goats mean bad, right? <laughs> goats, eternal punishment, hell. Sheep, they belong to God, they're his people. Rest, peace, bliss, all of that. So he knew all those passages that talk about that, and he's asking his wife, am I a sheep? Now, I don't want to read too much into that question because, you know, we all make assumptions. Like I said, the filmmakers may have left out a lot of what she said. But I got to think that Mr. Rogers is about to enter the presence of God. That's pretty weighty stuff to think about, right? You've lived your entire life and you're about to make your appearance before your maker who's holy and just and righteous. And you're about to give an account for every word, thought, and deed that you ever did, good or bad. And Mr. Rogers is shaken in his loafers, right? And here's what really was interesting to me, the answer that his wife gave. Did you see the documentary? You know what she said? She said, honey, if anybody is a sheep, you are. Now look, again, I don't want to read too much, I don't want to read too much into that because I can see some scenarios somebody may try to give assurance. Like I see fruit in your life. I'm sure that's where she was coming from. 
But man, that could be a really misleading answer. Because here, here's the way I think the people that were probably going to watch the documentary, unfortunately, are going to walk away with. Mr. Rogers is one of the kindest men you would ever meet in your life. Even the film makes that clear. He was on the, who you saw in the videos, wonderful day in the neighborhood, flipping his loafers up and his sweater on in the little make-believe neighborhood. His son and his wife said that's who he really was at home. Nicest man. He devoted his life to making children feel love and acceptance. And adults too. Right? I mean, his whole life was devoted to serving other people. Mr. Rogers was a pretty good person on the outside, pretty moral and upstanding guy, right? So I think probably what his wife was doing was pointing him back to all his good works and saying, look, if anybody's a sheep, you're a sheep. If anybody's getting in the kingdom based on their works, Fred Rogers, you are. But I would say that can be very dangerous, is very dangerous, and very misleading. And I think that's the same problem that our rich young ruler here, who's morally upstanding and looks great on the outside, I think that's the problem he had. And Jesus is about to give him a gut punch. And he's about to give us a gut punch too. Because I think one of the most dangerous assumptions that we have as believers is that we base our standing with God on our performance. Even as Christians, we do that. We do that before we get in the kingdom sometimes. And if we've understood and believe rightly the gospel, we fall back into that you know, if you go bowling, we fall back into that gutter ball lane, like Galatians talks about. If we begin with faith, but then we start to trust in our performance and our good works. And that's really dangerous. I think I even had a slide for that. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's the documentary. Won't you be my neighbor? Good old Fred on his deathbed, and he's thinking, Did I do enough? Did I do enough? And am I good enough? And what's the answer to that? No. <laughs> Man, that's, de that's if you are basing your relationship with God on your works, that's a devastating question to ask, isn't it? No, it's not enough. It's never going to be enough, ever. The best 10 minutes of your life you could ever offer to God would be flawed and would be stamped, rejected. I even hear people say this. Well, you know, his motives were pure. I don't, I don't want to offend anybody. You know, gosh, golly gee, I don't want to offend anybody, but there was only one person who ever had pure motives. Only one. I can't even discern. I'm serious. I'm, I'm here today as your pastor, and I want to feed you the Word of God. I do, and I love you, and I care for you. But I can't even discern my own heart. I don't even know where my good motives and my bad motives start and stop. Like, I want you to like me. I want you to praise my sermon. I want you to say amen and tweet good quote. I mean, I don't... Only one person has pure motives, guys, and it's Jesus. It's not Fred Rogers or Freddie Mercury or anybody else, okay? And that's the gut punch here is that, no, it's not good enough. It never will be. Your best 10 minutes. Charles Spurgeon said, your best prayer of repentance is filled with enough sin to cast you to hell forever. He said that. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers. And it's true. That's why we're always told in the Bible to look to Christ. See, that's either really, really offensive to you or that's good news. <laughs> That's it, right? That's Christianity. That either offends you so, so badly right now that you're shaking in your chair, or that's the best news you could ever hear, is that, look, man, you're playing with house money here. You know, it's Jesus' righteousness that we're looking to, not ours. That's the Christian message. So the correct answer is, Fred Rogers, you've done a lot of good things but none of them will earn you credit with God. Your goodness isn't enough, but Christ is. 
Am I a sheep? Am I good enough? If you're a sheep, it's got nothing to do with your goodness. That's the message. And listen, I just maybe I can piggyback on the message I preached not long ago about children and parenting getting to the heart. Anytime you ever, this is just a freebie. This is an aside, okay? Rabbit trail. Anytime you ever discern any form of that question coming up with your children, pull the car over. <laughs> call, call a timeout and an audible, whatever you're doing, and man, chase, go as far down that rabbit hole as they will let you because our hearts naturally go toward works righteousness. Naturally, they go there. George Whitfield said the last idol that's ripped out of the human heart is works righteousness. And it's always trying to reestablish itself. If you've lived in Florida very long, it works righteousness, depending on your good behavior, that's like the ant hills, the fire ant piles in your yard in the summer. You put this one out, and next week, poof, it's there, and there's a queen, there's like a million, a gazillion ants over there. You can't seem to get rid of it. You kill it, and it pops up. You kill it, and it pops up somewhere else. It's the last idol ripped out of the human heart. And so I would say, anytime any of your children or the person you're discipling, if you can just even detect they're trusting in good behavior, man, go for it. Talk about the cross. Take them to the cross. Martin Lloyd-Jones is one of my favorite preachers. And he would always ask people this question. He was an evangelist. He would always ask people this question. And it, was a, it wasn't a trick question. It was a test question. He would say, so are you a Christian? Tell me how you became a Christian. And he was always listening to see if they would, if they would include themselves in the answer. For example, people would say, well, you know, I've been praying a lot more and I'm, and I'm going to church and I'm really trying to read my Bible and he would know in his heart that they had no clue what the gospel was. You don't try to become a Christian. <laughs> it's like Yoda said from Star Wars, either are or are not. No try. <laughs> right? <laughs> Sorry if you're not. <laughs> it's Star Wars or Star Trek. Guys, I have no idea how this sermon is going to go. All right. Just bear with me here. <laughs> you're either in the kingdom or you're out of the kingdom. You're not floating around trying to get in, right? No, I think this man is feeling the effect of a curse. This is point number two, by the way. Point number two, Jesus challenges our assumptions. Everybody's assumptions are challenged here. The disciples' assumptions are challenged. This man's assumptions are challenged. What does he say when he runs up to Jesus? What's he say here? Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In another version, Matthew or Luke, I don't remember which one, he says, good teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, man, you just got to love the way Jesus, he knows the heart. We don't have that. I know a lot of people are like, this is how you do evangelism right here. Well, yeah, that's a good pattern. But we, we can't read people's thoughts. Jesus knew what this man was thinking. And he said, hey, hang on there, cowboy. What do you mean by good? What are you calling me good for? I mean, this man obviously didn't know who Jesus was. He knew he was a good teacher, right? Do you remember the, uh, I'm sorry, I'm a, I'm a Lord of the Rings and a Hobbit fanatic. Do you guys remember the Hobbit? It's in the book and the movie, okay? So there's no confusion. When uh, Gandalf first meets Bilbo Baggins, he walks up to him and Bilbo's smoking his pipe and he's already aggravated that his morning's been interrupted. And he says, good morning to Gandalf. You remember that? And Gandalf says, what do you mean good morning? Is, is it a good morning or is this a, uh, a good morning whether I want it to be or not? Or do you mean that you feel good this morning? Or that this is a particular morning to be good on? 
It's like Jesus is kind of doing that in a different way with this rich young ruler. He's saying, what do you mean good? Why are you calling me good? Only one person in the universe is good, and it's God. God is the only good person. Already, Jesus is like gut-punching this guy. He doesn't know it yet. He's challenging all of our assumptions. He's, he's challenging this man's assumption about what human goodness is. And he's also challenging the disciples' assumption. Because listen, don't miss this. In the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, the underlying assumption was they had their own prosperity gospel problems, okay? The underlying assumption was that if you were wealthy, then what? Divine favor. God has tremendously blessed you if you're wealthy and rich. That means you and God are like A-OK. Everybody thought that. Everybody thought that. That's why you see the reactions that you do a little bit later when this man walked away and Jesus shakes his head and says, Children, children, do you know how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? It says they were blown away. The word is actually explosso. It sounds like something out of Ghostbusters. It means to be struck out of your ever-loving mind. They couldn't believe that Jesus was saying this. They were dumbfounded. What? Then who can get in? It's the opposite of what we would think probably in America today. Well, if you're wealthy, you're corrupt, and you've cheated, and you're greedy, and you've lied on your income taxes and all of that. No, no, no. Back then... They thought, man, this guy's good with God. And Jesus says, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom than it is for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. And it blew their ever-loving minds. See, their assumptions were wrong about everything. Isn't it interesting? If you look at the passage right before this, do you know what it's about? And by the way, I've already taught on that passage. If you're wondering why we didn't camp out there, it's about little children. Jesus said, let the little, little children come to me, for such is the kingdom of God. Now check this out. Do you remember this story? The little children and their parents were trying to get to Jesus. And what were the disciples doing? Blocking them. <laughs> like a football game. No, you can't get to Jesus. He's too busy for you. You're not important enough. But the rich young ruler, what do you think they did when a rich man was running to get to Jesus? Let him by, boys. Let him by. VIP. Go right ahead, sir. You see their assumptions? Jesus turns everything in the kingdom right side up and upside down, doesn't he? Because Jesus said, no, you let these little children come to me. And it's interesting to me, if you, if you contrast these two passages, these little children had nothing to commend themselves. Empty-handed, wonderstruck with Jesus. I mean, you've got to love being around children. They say being around children, whether you're a parent or whether you teach children or you volunteer out of child care, whatever. They say being around children is really good for you, psychologically, socially, theologically, physically. It's just good for you. Why? Because children are just so blatantly honest, aren't they? You know, sometimes I throw up or I poop my pants or you need to wipe me. I mean, they tell you I'm hungry. I'm angry. They tell you whatever's on their mind. And these little children running up to Jesus, they had nothing. They were empty. They were empty handed. And Jesus says, Little kingdom belongs to such as these. What was he saying? That has thousands of rainforests have been cut down by men and women writing about what that means and doesn't mean. It's very simple what it means. These little children were empty-handed, so to speak. They were dependent on somebody else's life to sustain them, right? They didn't have anything to give to Jesus. All they had was their neediness. That's all they had. Jesus, we want to be with you and we need you. That's all they had. They were empty in the right way. <laughs> this rich young ruler, 
He comes to Jesus and he's got all this stuff he's attached to, right? Not just wealth, not, not, just, uh, not just money, but morality. He's so connected. He's got all these commandments that he's supposedly kept and got all this money that he's accumulated. And he leaves sad, right? He leaves sad. The children leave happy. It's, it's interesting, even the words that are used here. Jesus picked these children up, he held them, and there's a word, it's like kata eucharisto. It means to super abundantly bless. These children left super blessed. This rich, young, wealthy ruler who, with all of his morality and, and false assumptions about God, he left troubled. The word means like a storm cloud. He left a wreck, distressed, sad, and empty. What's the difference? These children left with a blessing, and it's almost as if this man left with a curse. Now, bear with me here. Do you know what the Bible says about depending on your law-keeping to be right with God? You know what it says? Many people miss this. This is heavy stuff, guys. Put your scuba gear on, okay? We're going deep. Galatians, the book of Galatians says this. Cursed is the man or woman or child who depends on his law-keeping to make him right with God. It doesn't say you're cursed if you try to obey the law. You're not cursed. That's a good thing. You should want to obey the law, right? Hopefully we're law lovers, right? And we strive to be law keepers. But the Bible says there's this really, really thin line. When you step over it, you're, you're cursing yourself, basically. What is that line? It's not trying to keep the law. It's depending on your law keeping to make you right with God. Jesus says, there's no difference between you and every other false religion in the world when you cross that line. You're under a curse. You're under a curse. Man, isn't that crazy how easy it is to fall into that? That's where this man is. He comes to Jesus and he offers all of this morality to him. Here, let's, We haven't even gotten to the good part yet. Here it is. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandment. So he's asking, how can I have assurance? How can I be confident that I'm right with God? How can I, how can I have eternal life? And Jesus says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud, which may be a combination of the last two commandments. Uh, don't steal and don't covet, right? And honor your father and your mother. And then check verse 20 out. Check this out. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Now, hit the pause button again. Now, stay, stay with me. Is everybody tracking with me right now? I don't want to lose anybody. This is where, when, when, when I'm studying the Bible, sometimes I'll check scholars and commentaries. I just want to make sure my interpretation is not so crazy and fandangle. <laughs> like, oh man, I got, a, I got a word for you today. Nobody's ever seen this before in this passage. <laughs> now, you need to be careful then, okay? Because there's, there's checking principles that we have. Um, this is where a lot of people get whacked out on what this passage actually means. Why did Jesus give this man more law. He says, how can, I, how can I have eternal life? And Jesus says, keep the commandments. And he says, I've kept all those from my youth. What in the world is going on here? Do you know what Jesus is doing here? This is the gut punch this guy needs. This is like intervention from Jesus. <laughs> it's intervention. It really is. Jesus does this. If you're a Christian, this happened with you at some point. Maybe it didn't look exactly like this, but there was a hardcore reality check for you that opened your eyes to, look, this Christianity 
It's not like any system or religion or philosophy or ideology you've ever experienced before. It's totally different than that. And it is a gut punch. Jesus is humbling this man. Now look, I believe this. I don't believe that this man was a religious hypocrite, okay? I don't believe that at all. I sincerely believe that he thought on the outside he'd kept all those things. This guy didn't sleep around, so in his mind and heart, he didn't believe that he had committed adultery. This guy got his wealth honestly, apparently. He hadn't defrauded people. He hadn't exploited people. He hadn't taken money under the table that he didn't tithe on. None of that. Now, now listen, those are all externals of the law, okay? You feel me here? He hadn't made a habit of lying in his life. So on the outside, it's like Philippians 3.6. The Apostle Paul, looking back on his life before he was saved, said, According to the law, I was blameless. Externally, okay? I think this guy really did sincerely believe I've kept those commandments as best I could for my youth. And then Jesus says this. This is where it gets really crazy and where all the commentaries like go nuts. He said, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. <laughs> this is one of the most tender statements in all of Scripture. Here's a man who, who has it all, but he's empty, he's broken, he's coming apart at the seams, and he's trusting in his own morality to save him. I mean, he's standing in front of the king of heaven and basically trampling on his blood, and Jesus looks at him, and he has nothing but love for him in his heart. Isn't that incredible? That's incredible. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Now look, this love, Jesus' love for us, it's not just sentimental and nostalgic. Jesus' love for this man is going to drive him to do what he does next. This is going to be the TKO if you're into boxing, okay? Jesus beat him up a little bit with the law, and the guy comes back and says, well, gosh, I've, I've kept all those. And then here's the gut punch. Are you ready? <laughs> he said to him, you lack one thing. That's great. Good job. Glad you kept all those. You know, there's two tablets to the law. There's the first tablet of the, you know, how you relate to God. And there's the second tablet, the last six or so commandments, that how you relate to your neighbor. And Jesus gave him the second. Isn't that interesting? Jesus gave him the commandments that how you treat your neighbor. You don't lie to them. You don't steal from them. You don't cheat with them. You don't cheat on your spouse. And he says, I've kept those. And Jesus says, okay, good. Well, there's one thing you lack. And here it is. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Man. And then it says, verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Now, what is Jesus doing here to him? And what's he doing to us? This is what Jesus is doing. You know, my math's not that good. We've, we've established that here at this church, right? Because Jesus says one thing you lack, one thing you're missing. But how many things does he tell this guy to do? Count them. How many? Three, right? He says you lack one thing, go do three things. What in the world's going on here? Because um, he says, sell all that you have, give the proceeds to the poor, and then come and follow me. What's he doing here? And Jesus loves this man so much, he is showing him. He, he is showing him that you are so blinded by your attachment to morality and law-keeping uh, and to money that you're not even able to even see the, the whole point of the law is to show you that you're a sinner and that you need to be justified by faith in Christ. So that's the gut punch that he gives him here. 
He says, look, um, let me just give you the first commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He says, I want to see if you love your possessions more than you love God. And the guy failed the test. And, and here's where people, I think, get really confused in this passage. And I guess I can ask you a question as your pastor. I want to ask you a theological question, okay? Did Jesus give this man the gospel? Don't answer it out loud. Did he give this man the gospel or did he give this man law? Because if you just looked at this story and you took this example and you went out and you preached the same message to every single sinner that you encountered, um, I have no doubt that, that nobody would get saved. Now bear with me here, okay? Nobody would get saved. Some people may be prepared to hear the gospel, right? They may be primed to hear the gospel, but what Jesus did here was test this man, okay? This is a test. Because he's asking, what good thing must I do? And Jesus says, oh, you... So you're asking me for this one heroic act, like go and scale Mount Everest, or go bring me back the broomstick of the Wicked Witch of the West. You're wanting some heroic, stupendous deed to accomplish to make you right with me? Okay, all right, I'll oblige you. Go sell everything that you own, give the money to the poor, come back and follow me. And the guy's crestfallen. He's torn to pieces. Why? Why? Because he's attached to his wealth. He's attached to his morality. That was the test that he failed. He wasn't ready to hear the gospel yet. So that's, the, that's the, the question I want you guys to think about today. This is really law. Jesus is giving this man law. If he would have, if he would have humbled himself, if he would have humbled himself, the conversation would have gone differently. But Jesus loves this man, and so he is, he is trying to show him his, his own self-righteousness. We're blinded to it. We're all blinded to the things that we trust in outside of Christ. And God knows that. Jesus knows that. So this is the gut punch that that man needed in order to be prepared. So the one thing that he lacks, you know what it is? It's Jesus. <laughs> That's it. Sorry if this is a little unclear, but let me make it clear. The one thing this man lacked was Jesus. And what Jesus is trying to do is show him, look, you're standing in front of me, and I'm reaching out my hands to you, and I'm saying, take my hands and come. Come to me. Come to me and let me give you life. And here's a man, he has morality in this hand, and he has money in this hand, okay? Think of it this way. And Jesus says, reach out your hand and take my hands and come to me. And he's looking at his hands, and he's looking at Jesus, and he, can't, he won't do it. He can't do it. And so he turns away with his morality and with his money, and he goes away sad and cursed. He didn't have to, but that's the path he chose. That's why the one thing that he lacks is Jesus. Look, guys, this, this is like Christless, Jesusless Christianity is the path this man was on. Michael Horton wrote a book about this called Christless Christianity. And in that book, he quotes a famous sermon by Donald Gray Barnhouse who was a famous pastor, and he wrote some commentaries on Romans. And he was asked this question, what would a city look like under the grip of Satan? What would it look like if a city was totally dominated by Satan? And we probably all in our minds have, have a vision of that, right? Pornography would be rampant. Streets would be dirty. It would be filthy. There would be violence and crime. Uh-uh, no. Donald Gray Barnhouse said, no, 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 no. If Satan had his claws deeply embedded into a city, here's what it would probably look like. The streets would be clean and litter-free. Children would be walking hand-in-hand with their mommies and their daddies. 
They would smile, they would be polite, they would be moral, they would be upstanding, they would say yes ma'am and no ma'am and yes sir and no sir. And people would go every Sunday to church where Christ was not preached. That's what he said it would look like if a city was under the grip of Satan. That was so interesting to me to read that. Because that's exactly where this man is. And listen, it's where a lot of people that go to church every Sunday are. They are trusting in the good things that they're doing to make them right with God instead of trusting in the perfect and finished and completed work of Jesus Christ on their behalf. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's what Jesus is seeking to communicate to this man. It is. And you want to know something really interesting? I don't even know if we'll get to the third point. That's okay. The thing that's really interesting to me when I read this is the exact same word in Greek is used when this man went away sad and distressed. That's used another time in the Bible, in the New Testament. It's used in Matthew chapter 26 when Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane and he's praying and he asked his disciples, would you come and would you pray with me and would you watch with me? And it says that his soul was in agony and he was distressed and he was in great sorrow. And he told his disciples, he said, my soul is in agony, what? Even to the point of death. Same word there that was used for this man who was greatly in sorrow and went away. Why is that? What's the Bible telling us there? It's telling us this. Jesus put his finger on this man's identity and his worth. He put his finger on it, and the man wasn't willing to give it up. But do you know that Jesus, who was also a rich young ruler, have you ever thought of that? Jesus is a rich young ruler too. He's about 30 or 31 years old when he met this man here. Um, He's the ruler of the world. He's the Lord of glory, right? (laughs) He owns everything. He owns the whole world. He's on a throne. He's a king. He's the true ruler, the rightful heir of the throne of David. Um. He's wealthy beyond imagine. He, he owns the whole world. His riches, the Bible said, were, were there's nothing that will surpass the riches of Jesus. So he's a rich young ruler too who meets this rich young ruler. And Jesus, why, why do you think when Jesus looked at him, it says he loved him? I think it's because Jesus understood. This rich young ruler is unwilling to give away the very thing that's at the center of his being. His spiritual center is, is his wealth right? He wasn't willing to give it up. That's his identity. That's everything to him. He's not willing to give it up. But you look at Jesus, um, who's a rich young ruler, and what, what was he willing to give up? Compare those two things. Did Jesus give up his wealth to come after us? <laughs> Did Jesus give up his wealth to come and follow after us? Not follow us as a leader, but to chase us down and ransom us, the Bible says? Yes, he did. In fact, I think it's 2 Corinthians 8, 9, says, you know that he who was rich became poor on our account so that in him or through him we might become the riches of God. Jesus was was the ultimate rich young ruler who became impoverished for us. He gave away everything to come and chase after us. And do you know why in the garden it says that Jesus, now I speak as a man, this is not heresy, okay? It says that Jesus was wrecked in the garden. He was wrecked. To the extent that a rare medical condition where your capillaries burst, you know, it says he was sweating drops of blood. That's an actual condition that's been cataloged and documented for soldiers and people under great stress and under great pressure. 
What was going on there? Why was Jesus in sorrow and this rich young ruler was in sorrow? Because the core of this young man's identity was at stake here, and so was Jesus's. What was it? What was Jesus's identity? His relationship with his father. That defined him. His, his, his love relationship that for eons had been unbroken. And in the garden, Jesus knows what he's about to do. He's about to drink the cup of his father's wrath, and fellowship with God is going to be disconnected for a time. That had never happened before. And yet Jesus was willing to do it. He said, if there's any other way, then let's go that route. But there wasn't, so we did it. And so Jesus was, was wrecked in the garden so that we, didn't have, we wouldn't have to be. Isn't that amazing? That's what the gospel really is. And that's how Jesus challenges our, our underlying assumptions. This is what Timothy Keller said in his book, The King's Cross. And I'm closing up here. When Jesus called this young man to give up his money, the man started to grieve because money was for him what the father was for Jesus. It was the center of his identity. To lose his money would have been to lose himself. That's why Jesus is the ultimate rich young ruler who has given away the ultimate wealth to get you. And man, that's the gospel. It really is. So the person, so the person who has Jesus plus nothing can actually have everything. It'd be more wealthy and more, uh, less impoverished than the person who has everything on the outside. And look, this is, not, this is not a finger wagging at wealthy people. It's not at all. I can say this. I have known wealthy people who have been some of the most kind-hearted, radically generous, sacrificial, giving people that I've ever met in my life. And I have met some poor people who have been stingy and greedy and more entitled than anybody I've ever met in my life. No, this is just about where your heart is, where your treasure is. That's what this is about. This man had morality and he had money and that was his identity. And listen, he walked away under a curse because he was unwilling. He was unwilling to drop those things and reach out and take the hands of Jesus. So what is it that's causing you to, to be distressed? What's the one thing that's missing? I hope it's not. I hope nobody would come to this church and leave with a confusing message that, well, I got to do this and I got to do this. That's why we celebrate communion every first Sunday. It's to remind us, no, we don't look to our good deeds. It'll never be enough. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. We don't even pay the tip. Jesus paid it all, right? We just celebrate and relish and cherish his, his finished work on our behalf. He's truly the rich young ruler who gave away everything. Well, listen, the last point, I'll just mention it. Jesus rewards our sacrifices. Peter heard this. The other disciples heard it. They heard this wealthy man who they thought was blessed with God, couldn't get in the kingdom, and he wouldn't, he wouldn't give his stuff away, but they looked at, at what they had left. They left family and father and mother and brother and sister, and many of them left their nets, their jobs, their professions. And so Peter asked, Lord, what do we get? And Jesus said, listen, Nothing that any of you have sacrificed is going to go unnoticed by my Father. You're going to get repaid to the 100th degree. And that wouldn't be an exaggeration. That would be playing it light, probably. Jesus is saying nobody who's left homes and mother and father, nobody will cease to get repaid, and then some. He rewards our sacrifices. Jesus takes note of everything that we do.